0: This is in my honest opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion.
1: In his column this week, Duncan Garner examines Labour's political strategy, including whether it's gearing up to Trump National's tax policy. Duncan, now you think that Labour could steal National's tax threshold move as early as this month's budget.
2: Well, it would make sense. Why wouldn't it? Because they're not huge moves, but they are significant enough. They're inflation-adjusted, really. The number of people who get caught up in this um, in this area. Um, it gives a little bit of money back. National's promised to do this, but that only, re- effectively. That's all it will do in income tax. It is a very, very easy thing to do. IRD can do it overnight. They, they understand what thresholds are. They can move them. The computers are capable why wouldn't you do it? I mean, it's also very fair to the low and middle income people who slip into that top rate. You know, It's very easy to do. Uh, Labor knows National's policy. Uh, go and steal it. I mean they've been brash like this before and they could well do it again. It'd be quite cunning. Where does it, where does it leave National? Three months of what? They, that's their only tax policy they've got.
1: Surely that will leave them some time to cook up something else though? Uh,
2: well they've already ruled out top rate of tax. Uh, so yeah, so that's going to stay at 39 cents. I, I wonder if they need to revisit that. You know, the economy is um, – if, it's, if, it's, if the housing market and the economy is um, bottoming out at the moment um, and there's going to be a growth strategy, then maybe with growth comes a tax cut at the top. I don't know. But I wonder if National would like to revisit their tax their, their tax policy because they talk about being the party of low taxes. But if, if Labour stole that one, what have they got? They actually don't have a tax policy their tax policy to do nothing this government's collected 28 billion dollars uh, spending 28 billion dollars more in the last budget compared to the one when they first took office that's a phenomenal amount of money that's that's like a tax-free threshold five times plus so it's pretty phenomenal
1: so what are you expecting from this budget because oh. it's coming out you know in a couple of weeks time
2: there will be a surprise because there always is um it's so hard to predict budgets it's it's almost impossible it's it's, it's a fool's game but There'll be something, because it's election year, and it's election year document. You know, a budget is an election year document that, that, um, yes, it's about priorities, but it's also about a little surprise too. They'll hold this one really closely. I think it's somewhere around tax. I I think it has to be something around um, um, helping people with the cost of living, because that's what Hopkins has said. He said there'll be no frills. There'll be one part of the tax policy I think will come out in the budget. The second part will come out much closer to, to the election. But I think you'll see something in this.
1: What about the capital gains tax? Will we see something on that, or is it just political suicide close to the election? I think
2: it is. I mean, Labour has twice tried to float this, both unsuccessfully. If they haven't learned from that, then they'll never learn. I think Hipkins is a reasonable student of politics. He would have seen Jacinda fumble it twice. I mean, they went back a second time for that, you know. Um, There's some things in New Zealand that are just taboo. One of them is um, if you... If you re- refuse to pay some elderly the superannuation, you've got to pay everyone universal. I think universality is important there, and I think um, and 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 on this one, it's almost like you can't touch it. you can't put. We cannot now introduce a capital gains tax. It's so widely unpopular. People don't even want to get involved with the debate. The last time they suggested this, the economy went on hold for three months over that March quarter. So, I think they would be. I think think the system misses a – it needs a capital gains tax because capital gains isn't taxed in New Zealand. Not well. It's not captured well. We've seen that. But who's going to be bold enough to do it and do it well? Probably only national could do it, and they're a party of no new taxes. Mm. I think it's off the agenda.
1: So a tax-free threshold would be much more palatable to voters. Well,
2: Australia's got one. Mm -hmm. Britain's got one. Um, It's not a silly thing. I mean, why shouldn't people get some of their income tax-free? We're um, not talking about much, um, but for some people, it's significant. You know, it'll be three and a half thousand dollars per person uh, if you were to go tax free for the um, first fourteen thousand. it's it's a bit just over four billion dollars. I know that seems like a lot, but that's every year, so it, it's it's significant. That's twelve billion dollars over over three year cycle. It's huge. It's a, it's a big it's a big commitment. But this government's collected twenty eight billion dollars more in the last um, five years. It's not incapable of spending money, and how desperate. Will the parties become close to the election? I think it would be quite palatable to the to, to voters. They don't care who pays for it. They want it paid for. They're paying their tax. You imagine if people were to get a $3,500 boost. It's inflationary, especially if you spend it. But um, I think it could be widely popular, especially you can justify it by saying Australia's got one, Britain's got one. So we can justify it with our Western friends, yeah.
1: Don't those com- countries also have a capital gains tax?
2: They do, and they also have a high rate of tax as well. If you look at Australia, I think it's forty five. Um, percent, They have a higher savings rate as well, 12%, I think, on the income, um, on the income or the payroll. So yeah, we're still largely, I think we're about 20, 21 out of 35 OECD countries in terms of tax. So we sit somewhere near the middle. We could probably pay more tax. I know people, people, people won't find this popular. We could probably pay more tax. Who wants to pay more tax? But we maybe need a more balanced tax system. Um, and there have been many reports given to this government and previous government um, regarding where we're missing land tax. Um, really easy to collect. You need taxes that are simple, comprehensive, and easy to collect. That's why GST is so good. Nothing too complicated. Capital gains, if it's a generic tax on business as well, it could be it could be complicated. Um, National won't bring one in. Uh, and I think Labor's mad if they try, but the tax-free threshold—I think there's a there's a gimme there for one of those parties if they if they wanted to. Even if they only went seven thousand dollars, or they went five percent, not ten percent, whatever. You know, all sorts of the Cullen report of two thousand eighteen that looks at all the different examples, and Labor's read that, and so there's some options there. Mm-hmm.
1: The election fight is clearly about the economy out of National and Labour. Who do you think winning it in terms of convincing voters so far?
2: Well, Nationals was going to allow inflation to win the debate. So they were going to sit back, sleepwalk their way to victory at the start of the year and let um, the burning of people's wallets you know, through inflation um, hand them the, the victory. It's a much tougher fight now. Hipkins has, has brought a fight to these guys. He wants to make it about the economy. Economy is still strong in places, you know, and we we're having to engineer a recession. You know, we're having to go full bore on the on the tiller to engineer a recession. It's not easy. Uh, it's a very unnatural recession too. It may not. It may go a bit longer as well. When's it bottoming out? What's the house market doing? Uh, confidence. Confidence will be an issue as well coming into the election. Things go on hold. Spending goes on hold. Expensive plans go on hold. Nationals usually stronger on the election. But that's when they had John Key and Bill English around. Um, Luxon's untried, Changes his mind on things. Um, I think the National's got its nose ahead on, 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 on so many things, but Labour's not giving up. It's pretty clear.
1: Duncan, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, you're
2: welcome. No problems.
0: Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz.
3: Is a record $47 million loss really cause for celebration? Martin Devlin takes a look at New Zealand rugby's latest financial results in this week's Playing the Ball. Martin, why don't we start with some of those headline numbers? It's been another big loss for NZR this year.
4: Yeah, $47 million, record loss. Um, however, the way the press conference went, I don't know whether we should all be dancing because you know, it certainly sounded as though they think they've got something to celebrate.
3: Why? why what, what were they celebrating? What were they trying to hang their hat on?
4: Well, they're trying to hang their hat on the fact that their cash reserves have gone up 30 million um, despite the fact that they've had a 47 million dollar loss i mean there's a lot of con- you know a lot of confusion around it around some of the management speak from the ceo mark robinson i found and and just some of the creative accounting or bookkeeping it you know I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, an amateur, you know, economist at best, but when you say that you've lost $47 million, uh, when you say that your expenses have gone up $142 million to a record $277 million, that's over a 100% increase, when those expenses are now more than the income that you have earned over the last 12 months, when you have recorded continuous loss after loss after loss after loss year after year after year when you haven't actually made any decent profit since 2017 the lions tour there was a 5.5 million dollar profit last year but in the last five years you've got 80 million dollars worth of losses on the books a 47 million dollar record loss this time as i said record spending which is spiraling out of control I mean, you tell me a business in new zealand that could present those sets of figures to their shareholders and they would be sitting there saying, "We're doing a great job here."
3: What have they the, put the uh, that big increase in expenses down to? Have they? Have
4: they I haven't explained that at all. What they've said is they've said a very vague kind of statement about the fact that um, uh, it's caused everything is blamed on COVID. Of course, increased activity due to reduced activity during the COVID time. So what I assume that means is because we went on a northern hemisphere tour last year, because they are now trapped in this thing with the sponsors of this you know, All Blacks 15 that they've got to provide and pay for and send overseas and play as well. And do remember when we go to England we don't, or those places, we don't get any money from any of the TV deals or anything like that, the gate-taking. So, you know, essentially it's not an income-earning exercise for us. They haven't really specified, but, you know, I calculated it out to be, you know, around about an extra $3 million a week they're spending. It'll be very interesting to, to have that broken down in front of you in a set of figures which says this is what we're spending the money on. Because it sounds like an extraordinary amount of money. And as I said, Hamish, I don't don't know that many businesses which celebrate record spending that has increased over 100% in the last 12 months.
3: Revenue was up strongly as well, though. So they're sort of doing something right at one end, maybe.
4: Well, you gotta remember that Silver Lake also gave them a couple of hundred million dollars. So whether that gets included in the revenue, I don't know. And yes, let's applaud the fact that the revenue's gone up, but it's no good applauding the fact that the revenue's gone up when the expenses have gone up exponentially alongside it. And that now, you know, I mean look, you know, you're talking about let's compare it to Netball, for example, Netball New Zealand, who a couple of weeks ago um it was announced that That whole Jamaican tour fiasco when the Sunshine Girls came here. And I think they rang you up to play for them because they gave me a call. They ran out of players, if you remember. Um, That cost New Zealand netball $400,000. And that's, you know, hugely financially concerning to them. Mm. Um, Yet a $47 million loss for our national game doesn't appear to be a concern to the board or the CEO. You know, there are virtually no sports in New Zealand that make money. Um, New Zealand cricket does. They get great deals, obviously. New Zealand rugby supposedly is, or should. You know, outside of that, everyone else is pretty cap-in-hand and relies on Sport New Zealand funding and a few other different things. Um, When our national game is spending these record numbers and recording such huge losses, I I, I mean, as a rugby fan, as an All-Packs fan,
3: I'm concerned about it. Didn't didn't Rugby Australia recently announce some results as well? Well,
4: that's the other bizarre thing. So, you know, it's not like... You know, you can't draw a parallel between the circumstances. You know, if we're talking about increased activity because of reduced activity because of COVID, they're in exactly the same boat mm-hmm. as us. Yet yeah, they recorded an $8 million profit. Now, that basket case, you know, here's, a, here's an organisation which over the last couple of years has threatened to actually wind itself up because it has no money. And yet they've got no decent TV deal. Um, they, they get stuff all crowds going to any games. They haven't got any huge sponsorships. They're actually choosing athletes who are probably about the sixth or seventh on the ladder in terms of the best in Australia, yet they're making money, and us with the All Blacks are posting record losses. I just would like some more explanation in really simple bookkeeping terms of debits and credits. Because I don't know about you, I got 99 for school set accounting, right? And this is, you know, way back in the late 70s. But the the ledger was always meant to be more on the black side than the red side. Mm -hmm. Was that the same as you?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
4: Simple business economics.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, you, like you say, you do sort of worry about the uh, the long-term future if you're pulling out these numbers every every year, every so often.
4: Yeah, and also then it, you know, leads into question, doesn't it, what they're spending their money on. And, and, and as much as, you know, I think creating pathways in the benevolence towards women's rugby and, and, you know, what I believe should be reinvestment in Pacific Islands rugby, given the fact that, you know, we have stolen their players for the last three or four decades. You know, this is all well and good, but, you know, what kind of return are you expecting off that? Mm. Um, how do you intend to leverage off that? Um, and, and also, what are the plans to turn you know, a $47 million loss into a profit? Because that's the whole point, isn't it? I mean, this organisation shouldn't be running at a loss. Um, you know, again, I think they're all valid questions and answers on the back of a postcard, please.
3: Martin, thanks very much for your time.
0: Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown and his plan to sell the city's stake in Auckland Airport have received two thumbs up from Simon Bridges in his NBR column this week. Well, Simon, you cover a lot of ground in your piece, but it all starts with your first formal meeting with the Mayor last week. Set the scene for us. What was it like? What did you take away from that first formal meeting?
5: Yeah, well, good to see you. Look, we were were there talking Santa parades, and, you know, as I say in the column... um, it was a bit like a sort of um, on-closing-time uh, drinks at a, at a London bar. You know, a lot of talking. Uh, the deputy mayor was there, uh, uh, some officials. Um, but it was a good meeting. And and I think the thing about Wayne is, um, you know, he cops a lot of flack. He probably says things we're not allowed to say anymore. He probably gets a bit wrong as well. Um, but I came away from the being thinking, you know what, I quite like this guy.
0: <laughs> well, one thing you mention is that Yes, he is polarising. He does say things that maybe don't rub the right way with, you know, the critics out there. But why do you think he will make a good mayor regardless of that?
5: Well, look, you know, to be mayor, there's probably a few things you require. You need an agenda, a sense of where you're going. I think he's got that. Um, And then, look, some would say you need a sort of a sense of... um, whatever the word is, decorum, diplomacy. Look, I don't know that he's got uh, any of that. I think really the point of the column is just to recalibrate things a bit around him. But more than that, to say, look, actually on the budget and the airport shares, you know, he's got some real points. Actually, more than that, he's probably right.
0: Yeah, because you support that decision. Why is that? Why do you believe that it is in the council's interest and actually in the the interest of of ratepayers here in Auckland for us to not have a stake in the airport anymore?
5: I think the first point is, if you stand back, what's the problem? There is a problem with the council budget. I think other councillors acknowledge that, so there's an issue there. You then say, well, what do you do with it? Well, you could put up rates, you could you could borrow more. I don't think they are politically um, acceptable uh, scenarios uh, at the current uh, place with where we're at around inflation and interest rates and the cost pressures on on ratepayers, taxpayers, businesses. Uh, so then you say, Look, actually, that leaves you with the option of maybe selling stuff down. Uh, mm. Wayne's chosen the airport shares. And I'm sort of saying, Well, you know what? Actually, he's right. Um, run through the arguments on that. F- firstly, it's a case of not having had dividends for a long time. Mm. The interest. Um, that they're paying on the council debt uh, would be, you know, about $100 million saved, much more than any div- dividend they're likely to get any time in the future. So from a sense of kind of household arguments, you know, this is a story of um, paying not you know, pay down the mortgage rather than have some fancy shares that aren't pay your dividend. That's the smart, prudent thing to do. Look, I think you then come and say, well, you know, a lot of people say, well, but, oh, um, we don't want to see these shares go offshore. Um, This is a strategic asset. My real points around that are, look, yeah, it probably is a strategic asset. Um, We've seen other strategic assets like a refinery go the wrong way in recent times. But if it is a, a, a strategic asset, I don't think that's something we can bother a council with. I don't yeah. think they have the wherewithal. That's something for government to deal with. In any event, it's only 18% of shares, so it's not a strategic interest. Uh, so I come back to it. Look, I think all roads lead to uh, uh, the correctness of selling down these shares, paying down some debt, and trying to be more sustainable in terms of its fiscals as a council.
0: I find it interesting. You know, You do bring up the government, and maybe there is a case to be made that if there are strategic assets that... We do want to retain some sort of interest in, you know, would you actually, would you actually support that for the government to maybe step in? uh, 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 Is that what you're saying? Would you like to, you know, are you Um, theorising the idea of seeing the government taking a position in the airport?
5: It's it's not probably a respectable um, right of centre position, and I suppose that's where I come from. Mm. But I think the truth is, I take the most recent example in my view, the refinery. Um, that that was got, gotten out of by uh, businesses. Um, the refinery closed. I think that was strategic. I think it was a mistake. I think if you go across to Australia, for example, um, that they have stepped in around refineries, that they, they make the strategic case for it. And I think that was an example where government could and should have. Here, look, it's possibly not that straightforward, but I, I'm willing to go along with it being a strategic asset. Um, so that you know, I think if anyone's going to do anything about this, it is central government. In the end, though, um, it's it's only 18 percent the council's got. They don't control anything mm. as a result of that. So I, I I don't I'm not strongly making a case for government intervention. Right. Quite the opposite, actually. I'm really on this. Example saying, you know what, let private shareholders have it. There's overseas investment rules,
0: um, and it's not a strategic stake in any event. Obviously, the airport, you believe it should be on the sales block. Do you, are there any other things that 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 Auckland Council has an interest in that you think actually they might need to revisit their position there? Anything else that you'd like to see yeah. them table?
5: Now you really invited me to live dangerously, but look, I think I think um, the other uh, significant asset that again is uh, probably strategic is the ports of Auckland.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: You, you know, there'll be many views on that. I wouldn't. It might be a subject for another column. I, th- I think. What I would say at this stage, though, I've always heard the argument that were that listed or even in a mixed ownership situation where some is on the stock market and some is held publicly, it'd be better run. And I think you'd probably get more rational decisions around um, mm. its footprint uh, than, than many would say we have at the moment, you know, in terms of how big it should be, whether it should be there at all. Look, I think being on the stock market would, would inject a big dose of rationality into uh, into its ownership, into its existence.
0: All right, well, thank you for your time, Simon. It was great to talk with you. Good talk with you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz.
6: In the flip side this week, NBR's Dita De looks at ESG provisions and why they're under fire in the US from those that are attacking corporate activism in general and BlackRock CEO Larry
7: Fink in particular. And Dita, so apparently there's a war on woke. There is a war on woke, Maria. Um, It's a well-funded campaign in the States and it involves uh, Republican lawmakers, not all states, but some of them, especially where oil and gas and so forth, are headquartered. And what they're doing is trying to pressure various companies, including BlackRock, who put $9 trillion in assets around the economy, um, into not not putting their money in oil and gas and so forth. I'm really explaining that badly. Um, but, you know, it's the opposite of, of trying to invest green, it's the opposite of that. All right. So, so, this
6: is hard to get your head around because BlackRock <laughs> have been leaders, dare we say, in this movement uh, in recent times. And so, are they actually now pulling back? In
7: twenty, in about 2018, Larry Fink wrote in his letter to CEOs um, that everyone had to work to net zero by 2050, and we had to follow the rules of the Paris Agreement and so forth. And that was a big thing for a, for someone like him to say because, I mean. He controls $9 trillion in assets um, around the economy, and for him to make that signal, um, you know, a signal to everyone else that they had to, to get on board with this. And uh, so what's happened in the meantime is that oil and gas companies, I think, have have funded an opposition to this, because obviously it paints them as a sunset industry and they don't want that. So, um, and also there are jobs to protect and so forth. So what Larry Fink's now done um, they, they have pulled back, along with many of these other asset managers, on their sort of stridency around the issue. Um, and they've said that because of the war in Ukraine, the energy mix in the world is different and we need to be realistic and we, we need to factor in fossil fuels as well. So that's been seen as a step back by many, including climate activists.
6: So how much is it taking hold because they're in AGM season at the moment in the
7: US what are we seeing? Um, according to a non-profit that looks at resolutions, proxy proxy voting and resolutions in the upcoming AGM season they say that yes there is an increase in anti-ESG resolutions so that's what the activists want to see but they are still dwarfed by pro-ESG resolutions so they say the move towards environmental social governance concerns at the corporate level is, is still going. Um, it is being challenged but it's actually it's reached a momentum and so it's not going backwards
6: but of course you know we have to consider just the sheer size of blackrock and the influence that it has and you draw the distinction between capitalism and crony capitalism (coughs) what happens if someone like blackrock does pull right back from this
7: um well that's i mean the problem with the market as you've just said is that although it gives oil and gas an outsize influence in what's going on because so many levers are pulled at every level to to keep that industry going. Um, Also, BlackRock is also the the beneficiary of crony capitalism. So they've helped do all sorts of things like they're helping the Saudi Investment Fund. They are helping the Ukrainian uh, Fund to try and rebuild the country. They've got all sorts of government contracts going. They're very enmeshed in the machinery of Washington. Um, And this is a problem because it leaves, basically it leaves Larry Fink as sort of the sole defender of these kind of ESG things, because the government can't do it. In the States, the federal government just hasn't been able to to really um, push environmental laws on a federal level because they've got so much opposition that you know they're very finely balanced with the Republican Party. So it's really down to him in the States. And so if he sort of loses his nerve a bit, which appears to have happened, um, it sends a bad signal to everyone else and things go backwards. So that's a bit of a lesson for New Zealand. I believe so. I mean, we don't have the same kind of situation, but what it shows is that business, I mean, a New Zealand business is often very progressive and they do great things in this space, but it will not ever take the place of proper legislation that brings us all together and enforces these kind of ideas across the land. Um, we've got to keep pushing for that, I believe. Duboni, thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to
1: nbr.co.nz.